Welcome to Gateway Podcasts. We hope you enjoy the following recording from Gateway Church Doncaster in the United Kingdom. For more podcasts and information about Gateway Church, please visit our website, gatewaychurchdoncaster.org.uk. Thank you for listening. Anyway, last week we started to look at a passage in Isaiah 6, and it's where the prophet Isaiah starts to speak of his encounter with God. And we've already seen that this was an encounter that radically turned his life around. It changed him from being just another one of the priests in the temple to being the mouthpiece of God to a lost nation. And the question last week was a simple one. Really, it was, are we content just going through the motions, or do we desire an encounter like Isaiah's, with the true and the living God? So let's just look at those four verses again. It's Isaiah 6, starting at the beginning of the chapter. And it reads, in the king... It's not good when you get the third... It's not good when you get the third word wrong, is it? In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord seated on a throne, high and exalted, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him were seraphs, each with six wings. With two wings they covered their faces, with two they covered their feet, and with two they were flying. And they were calling to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. And at the sound of their voices, the doorposts and the thresholds shook, and the temple was filled with smoke. Someone once said that there are basically three types of people in this world. There are those who step forward and make things happen, those who stand by and watch things happen, and those who stare blankly and wonder what happened. Now, I don't know which category you think you're in and which you belong to, but I can tell you which category I want to be in. I want to be a person who makes things happen. Now, some years back I saw this in action myself, so I can sympathise with this view. I was working for New Frontiers, I was managing a bookshop at a conference, it was being run over a weekend, and on the Sunday morning one of the staff came to me and said, I think we're going to run out of the paper rolls that go in the credit card machines. I said, well, it's the last day. Have we got enough to get through the day? And they said, no, I don't think we've got enough to get through till lunchtime. Now, this was going to be a challenge. So, what I noticed was they spotted the problem. It's a good start, isn't it? And then they took great delight in telling everyone they saw. Everyone else that was working in the shop soon knew that we were going to run out of paper rolls by lunchtime. The 
problem was that although we could order some more, by the time we got on the phone to the order line and they got them delivered to where we were, the conference was going to be over and we'd be somewhere else. Ah, oh, how much they enjoyed telling everyone about the problem. But what they didn't do was find a solution. So, it was down to me. So, I got on Shanks's pony and I walked down the high street, down the town centre, and I went in every shop that was open. And I just said to them, have you got any paper rolls like this? If so, can I buy a couple? We're about to run out and we're desperate. And uh, I ended up going in a motorist's shop and I showed the manager the paper roll and I said, have you got any like this? And he said, oh no. Well, hang on a minute, we've had a new till system put in and that looks a bit like the old rolls. I might have a box of those upstairs. So he went off out the back of the shop and came back a few minutes later with a box with about 30 or 40 of these rolls in. And they were the right ones. And so I said to him, well, I'd like to buy them off you. And he said, don't worry about that. Just put a donation in the charity box. So Save the Children did very well. And it saved the problem that we had. Now, are you a problem finder or a solution finder? Because that's the difference. Now, when I look at Isaiah, in amongst those three categories that I started with, I think I can tell which Isaiah belonged to. I think he definitely belonged to the group of people who make things happen. And I think, in amongst other things, for anyone who aspires to leadership or getting on in the kingdom of God, that is the category to be part of. Why? Because a simple definition of a leader is a person that people follow. Someone who makes things happen. Now, some people are tempted to put leadership qualities down to someone's natural charisma or their talent. But even secular management books wouldn't agree with that. They say that leaders can be made. You're not just born. But in spiritual terms, the beginning for any leader is the call of God upon their life. Because God identifies and selects men and women to lead his people. And then he shapes them. And he shapes them according to their calling. The Scottish Bible teacher Oz Chambers said, and this is a couple of decades ago, to be brought into the zone of God's call is to be profoundly altered. When you look at some of the other Christian writers on leadership, they will tell you what leaders have to go through. But most Christians seem to prefer to live in their comfort zone. To carry on the routine of predictable responsibility and duty. But I think there should come a day in every believer's life when God puts
pushes us out of our comfort and safety zone and takes us into his danger zone. And that's when we hear his calling on our life. And that's what he did with Isaiah. And I'll tell you what, once we enter that danger zone, we are never the same again. Isaiah was a man who entered the danger zone. And he was totally transformed by God. One day he was a priest, quietly going about his business, when God raised him up and anointed him to speak to nations. He was called to be a prophet. Now in Isaiah's day, that was an occupation fraught with danger and difficulty. Now the prophets of God are not like modern philosophers. They don't just write down their opinions and give it to other scholars to debate. They lived on the edge. More often than not, the words that God gave them were provocative and highly offensive to the people they needed to tell. And because the prophets were God's messengers, they were often given the task of delivering God's ultimatums to a people who didn't want to hear it. And as a result, they were often despised. Prophets didn't have a long life expectancy. I'll tell you what, if they'd been operating in this day and age, I think they'd have wanted danger money. It would be like bomb disposal experts. Because they know if things go bad at work today, it could be fatal. That was what it was like for prophets. They could end up, every time they opened their mouth, being stoned. Tell you what, the word of God is like dynamite. And one of the tragedies of the current universal university level theology is that what we see is groups of bored students sitting together in a class examining the words of prophets like Isaiah or Amos but don't realise that they're handling something explosive. The reason they don't realise it is simply because it hasn't blown up in their face yet. But the words of these prophets aren't meant to be the subject of philosophical discussion. It's not meant to be something that scholars argue about. They're the very word of God. And God's word will have a huge impact on our lives if we will just allow it to. Now going back to Isaiah's day, prophets crossed boundaries. And they crossed boundaries that other people probably wouldn't dare to cross. They walked into the king's chamber. Sometimes they took on entire armies. And more often than not, they were confronting the powers of evil that reigned in their land and their situation. And that meant they had to have a total disregard for their own safety. And I think that begs a question. I think we ought to at least be a little curious 
as to why anyone in their right mind would want to take on a ministry that meant every time you opened your mouth you could lose your life. Where you were required to challenge kings, to take on armies and to confront the powers of evil. But when you put all the prophets side by side, Isaiah stands out. He stands out as the one who saw the glory of Christ. As a result, he spoke of him like no one ever had done before, or to some extent has done since, except maybe Paul. Isaiah spoke to the common people. And Isaiah gained access to the kings. And I believe God is raising up men and women just like Isaiah today. People who've experienced the glory of Christ and who are able to speak prophetically into our nation. And as he does, God will give them access to the highest places and the most influential people in this land. So that he, so that they can testify to his glory. And I think, looking at Isaiah, hopefully it would inspire some of us to rise up and to walk in the calling that God has put on our lives. After this encounter with God, Isaiah continued to prophesy throughout the reign of four different monarchs over a period of something like about 60 years. And he prophesied some of the weightiest words and over the longest period, in fact, some of the most moving and memorable things. And he gave one of the largest outputs of all the Old Testament prophets. He lived in an era that was full of chaos, full of moral crisis, in some ways a bit like the one we're living in now. The people of Isaiah's day were faced with some terrifying national dangers. They faced international terrorism because of the Assyrian power that was poised, ready to take over their nation. And Isaiah's prophetic words were spoken into that context and they helped and shaped that nation. And they will help shape the church today. So, how did all this begin? What could explain a ministry like Isaiah's? And more importantly, how should we look to duplicate that type of ministry in our own setting? I believe the future of the church and its success today doesn't lie in learning better management techniques. It doesn't lie in taking on the strategies of the latest church growth experts, however good they might be. It won't be achieved by improving our PowerPoint presentations. And it won't be achieved by using better marketing techniques 
to enhance our image in the eyes of the world. What I believe is needed is for each of us to return to that quiet, secret place where God can have personal dealings with us. We need to look at the roots of Isaiah's success and others whom God's used. Because only then can we understand the end of Isaiah's ministry by going back to its very beginning. We need to dig deeper. That's quite a daunting task. On the one hand, Isaiah chapter 6 is one of the best known, but equally least understood passages in the entire Bible. It's a passage that often gets mentioned but somehow escapes closer examination because of our familiarity with it. Now, I don't know about you, I like to think I understand a few things about life. I know how to to make, make a good curry. I know how a computer works. But if you pushed me on any one of those things, sooner or later my understanding and my knowledge would run out. And it's the same when I look at this passage of scripture. If you read it slowly, if you take the time to look at every word and phrase, I find loads of questions come to mind. Have you ever thought any of these? Why does God have a robe? His spirit. Yet, the train of his robe filled the temple. What are seraphim? Why do the doorposts shake? Where does the smoke come from? How about this one, another question. How can you have a hot coal touch your mouth and still be able to speak? Now, I'd like to think we could understand those things. But we have to recognise that in reality, we know and we understand so little. Yet there's no doubt... There's no doubt at all in my mind that it is the results of this encounter with God from which Isaiah's life and ministry over the next 60 years stemmed. It was from seeing and understanding some of those things that I find just puzzle me most. And surely it's our failure to see and to understand those things that explains our lack of effectiveness and the superficiality of much of modern day Christianity. Isaiah saw the church as centre stage. He saw it as the centre of world change and renewal. Listen to what he wrote in Isaiah 2. It's verses 2 to 4. In the last days, the mountain of the Lord's temple will be established as chief among the mountains. 
It will be raised above the hills and all nations will stream to it. Many people will come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. He will teach us his ways so that we may walk in his paths. The law will go out from Zion, the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He will judge between the nations, he will settle disputes for many people. And they will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not take up sword against nation, nor will they train for war anymore. But the bottom line is this. If the church is to become that centre of world renewal and change that Isaiah talked about, then we need a fresh encounter with Isaiah's God. Now there are some people around who I think have had that encounter. I don't know, have you ever met people that you call truly prophetic in the way that Isaiah was? You know, there are some people you instinctively know have been with God. Because there's something unmistakable and extraordinary about them. Over the years, I've had the privilege of hearing about or seeing or meeting a number of people that I would put in that category. And I want to just talk about a couple of them because I want it to inspire our pursuit of God. Because I think these are little illustrations of what God can do with a person or a group of people when they've seen his face and are really open to what he wants them to do. The first one is a name that will be familiar to some of you. A guy called Arthur Wallace. Now, I think Arthur was a real God chaser. As a young man, he heard that revival was breaking out in the Hebrides. That would have been the 1948 to 1952 revival. And because of that, and because of his desire to experience it himself, he travelled the length of the country, having given up his job, to go and find out what was going on. And that had such an impact on him that for the rest of his life he lived and prayed for God to break out in revival again. If you read his books, his writings over the years took on a prophetic call to the church. And there's a guy, I know him as Krianzak, but he these days calls himself Joseph, Joseph C. Wonsack. Back in 1997, he was the visiting speaker at one of the Stony Bible Weeks. He's the leader of a network of churches in Asia called the Hope of Bangkok. Now, when he was a young man in his early 20s, he went to Australia to study economics for a PhD. And at the time he was a Buddhist and it was planned that when he finished his course of study he would go back to his home nation of Thailand and take up a significant post in the government. 
But while he was in Australia, he came into contact with a number of Christians. And over time, he began to learn the truth of the gospel. And as a result, he was dramatically converted, and he began to devour the Bible. For the next three years, while he was studying for his PhD, he read and reread the Bible, and every Christian book he could get his hands on. And then he felt the call of God on his life to be a pastor. So when he finished his PhD, he didn't return to take up his government post as was expected. Because he told them that he had a higher priority for his life. And he returned to Thailand to plant churches. His stated goal at that time was to plant 685 churches, one in every province of Thailand by the year 2000. At the time, that was one every 10 days. By the year 2000, Krianzak hadn't only managed to meet that goal, he'd in fact planted 700 churches. The first church he planted in Bangkok now has in excess of 9,000 members and 1,000 cell groups across the city. How could one man possibly do this? The answer is simple. He had seen and heard the living God. And then there's the Chinese Christians. I don't know if you've read about them, whether you've seen any of the video clips that are occasionally around. But they are utterly committed to mission and evangelism. In the underground churches, they train their young people, particularly those who are in their late teens and early 20s, to become missionaries. These evangelists buy a one-way ticket to wherever they feel God is leading them. Mainly inland China. And they have no expectation of ever returning. Most of them manage to plant a church within three to six months of arriving at their destination. How do they do it? Well, they go around a village and they invite the people they meet to bring all the sick out of their house into the centre of town. And they announce that that afternoon they're going to pray for the sick. Usually by the end of that day, several hundred people would have assembled in the town centre. And they pray for each and every person there. And I have to say, it seems that almost every single person gets dramatically healed by the power of Jesus Christ. And so by the end of a week, the whole town or village has been impacted. And most of them would have turned to Christ and have given up their idols. So dangerous is this activity that these evangelists often won't sleep the night in the village that they visit. They go outside the village and hide in a field, 
often just sleeping in open fields, even amongst the frost and the snow, because their lives are totally sold out to spreading the gospel. And by doing that, they avoid getting discovered prematurely of arrest and imprisonment so that they can spread the gospel further. As a result, the gospel is spreading like wildfire in China. In 1948, there were one million Christians in the whole of China. That was when the Great Revolution took place. It is now estimated there are 95 million. 59 or so years later, 60 years later. These people have seen God in a way that most of us simply haven't. So, how does our experience of church life compare with those examples? I think we have to admit it probably doesn't compare favourably for most of us. The reality is that for us, church can go on fairly predictably for months or even years with not much out of the ordinary happening. We easily settle for a comfortable, safe existence in what are reasonably prosperous times, even in the middle of the credit crunch. You know, since Macmillan was Prime Minister, right through the Thatcher years and into the current days, you know, we have to admit those words that Macmillan used ring true. We've never had it so good. But the tragedy is, as we go about our daily business, as we work, sleep, eat, shop and visit church, it can all just become a routine. Oh, we might attend the occasional Bible week or conference and we might come home having had dealings with God, but we soon lose the impact of it. One of the former rectors of All Souls Langham, uh, Pat Langham, Langham Place in London summed this up. His name was Richard Boos. He said, Western-style materialism can strip the individual of all sense of direction in life, as if the only re- reason to live was to acquire lots of things. Reducing life to a repeated cycle of sleep, rise, eat, work, watch TV. Sleep, rise, eat, work, watch TV. Until you die. Without a real encounter with God. We soon slip into something which is just a mechanical form of Christianity. And you can sense that when you go into some churches, there's something hollow there. And something hard in the lives of the believers. Sometimes even their leaders seem remote and mechanical. And you think you can hear the cogs whirring. Because their meetings go through with a mindless efficiency. And you hear robotic sounding voices challenge us, shall we pray? 
even good spiritual leaders can become professional at what they do. But I don't think that Jesus pays an awful lot of attention to that sort of just religious murmuring. If you like, what many Christians have is some kind of synthetic spirituality that produces a synthetic joy. From time to time, it looks like the real thing. But actually, it manifestly isn't. The real thing is something that draws God's powerful presence and arouses a watching world to either total hatred or total surrender to the God we love and serve. (coughs) If we have such a superficial spirituality, it's likely that inside we're deeply unhappy and discontented. And if that's you, I just want to ask you, are you brave enough to admit that's where you're at now? Are you still suffering from that joyless, tired religion I talked about last week? If so, you've got an awful lot in common with Isaiah. That was exactly how he lived right up until that magnificent day in the temple. He spent his time jumping through all the right hoops, performing his religious responsibilities while he was on regular duty in the temple at Jerusalem. And you know, he hadn't at that point had an encounter with God. But then he did, and it was that that turned him from being a young but not particularly notable priest into a mighty, fearless prophet. If we're not careful, synthetic spirituality means that we try to manufacture this artificial joy by adding more and more activities and acquiring more and more things for ourselves. The world tells us joy, peace and contentment comes from driving the right car, from improving our golf handicap and from wearing the right clothes. But surely... The true meaning of life doesn't come from fashion. Neither does it come from a fortnight in the Greek islands or cutting a big deal in business in the city. Now, none of those things are wrong in as far as they go. But we have been made for so much more. We need to break out of our mould and realise the calling that God has put on our lives. In Ecclesiastes 3.11, it says, He has made everything beautiful in its time. He has also set eternity in the hearts of men, yet they cannot fathom what God has done from the beginning to the end. One of the early church writers, St. Augustine of Hippo, agreed with that really. 
he said thou hast made for thyself and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in thee thou hast made us for thyself and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in thee there's a God shaped hole in everybody's heart what are you trying to fill it with because our souls can't be fed only with ambition achievement and purchases we need something like the encounter Isaiah had with the living God to begin to fill the emptiness that we feel from time to time and to launch us into the kind of life and ministry that God has planned. The American author Max Lucado said, Pilgrims with no vision of the promised land become proprietors simply of their own land. They set up camp, they exchange hiking boots for loafers, and trade their staff for a new lazy boy recliner. We need to experience the real, authentic joy of God that comes as a result of encountering him, of seeing his power at work, of hearing his voice speaking into our lives, and having that spiritual reawakening. The greatest thing that could happen to any of us in our whole life is that we have a mighty encounter with him. It's the beginning of a radical healing of everything that's worst and most deadly inside us. Of comfort and complacency. Isaiah stood before the intense presence of Almighty God as if it was before a live volcano burning hot with divine holiness. He was always going to get burnt. But the question is will you dare to enter his presence are you prepared to get burnt so that your life will never be the same again we hope you enjoyed this podcast don't forget to visit gatewaychurchdoncaster.org.uk 